0: So the orb itself has a secure element um, and a secure element essentially hosts private keys, cryptographic keys. And what what this secure element is able to do is it's able to sign the image um, of the orb. Um, So the orb takes the original image from which you generate the iris code. So this image, it signs it. And then you could encrypt it with a signature on top of it, store it, self-host it on the user's client, user's phone, or whatever other client they implement for World ID in the future. And whenever you create a new model that creates iris codes more efficiently, um, you would essentially go into this zkML domain where you download a zk prover for generating this iris code. So you'd have to create a prover for the iris code model, like a zk circuit. And a ZK prover for, for this RS code model, you'd create a proof of the creation of this RS code locally um, on using the image that has the signature from the orb, right? So like the trust assumptions are not broken.
1: This week we talked to DC Builder, who's an engineer at Worldcoin. We had a really great conversation. What do you think, Chase?
2: Yeah, I think we touched on a lot of really interesting stuff. One of them being, you know, what data is actually stored and what that looks like, because it feels like there's a lot of confusion around that. So more clarity there felt really good. Um, and then we also talked about trust assumptions in in WorldCoin and, you know, where within the flow you can sort of verify and and where you're kind of hoping that uh, WorldCoin audits are are coming out uh, okay and, and you're sort of putting faith in the team. So Thought it was a really interesting conversation and provided a ton of clarity on um open questions with WorldCoin. So I hope people enjoy um this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it.
1: Let's jump into it.
2: We are here with DC Builder. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We're really excited to chat.
0: Hello, hello. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to to talking about anything tech related.
2: <laughs> I love that. Um yeah i can't wait to talk about some of the things that you've worked on the space also your work at Worldcoin and and all of the things but mm-hmm. before we do that maybe you can give a little bit of context on your background um and how you got into crypto and mm-hmm. and yeah let's start there
0: yes so um so i am currently a research engineer at worldcoin on the protocol team and so my current interests mostly lie around like uh, Applied cryptography, distributed systems, and just blockchain engineering in general. Uh, and I guess I got into crypto in like early 2018 from uh, watching math videos. Uh, there's this channel called Three Blue and Brown, um, done by Grant Sanderson, where there's like explanatory videos, educational videos about different math topics. And one day he made a video about Bitcoin. So that's like my original like um, rabbit hole deep dive into what crypto was. So I always came at, at crypto, like from the tech perspective and from like what it allows you to do from a foundational, like technological perspective. So that's, that's sort of like my, my original coming into this space.
1: Yeah. You came from a pretty math heavy background. <clears throat> um, whereas I think a lot of devs in the space, uh, will attempt to avoid math at all costs. So w- what was that like transitioning from, um, heavy math into getting into development?
0: I would I would not necessarily say it was heavy math uh, I was 17 so like the math I knew was mostly self-taught because I was into AI at the time like it was like the the, the buzzword in like 2016 2017 um like and I was like doing some internships doing computer vision stuff uh, in Python and uh, I was I was learning math because it allowed me to like, do cool things. And I was also just interested in the beauty of it, um, partially thanks to people like Grant Sanderson that may, make you appreciate just how, how wonderful it is. Uh, the transitioning to development took me a while. I did not start as a developer in crypto in 2018. Um, I was mostly a researcher um, and writing tech, tech, tech articles about it in the beginning. The reason for that was is I was still in high school and I was looking to get like an internship side job. So I was looking for different places where I could do that in crypto. And I just found like a research tech writer job that allowed me to sort of like do it very flexibly, remotely, write articles, learn about crypto because I knew very little at the time. And that was like sort of like my original rabbit hole where I got to learn, got paid for it, wrote articles. And by writing, it's like the best way of learning, explaining things, complex topics in an easy way to understand Um, so yeah that's i guess how i got started with that
2: i'm curious what that uh pipeline from being more on the research side and diving into like in theory how these things work, um moving more towards uh, like a hands-on development role um how did that transition go and what did that look like
0: Hmm. yeah so i i always thought that like I wanted to do some form of engineering eventually because um, I, I, I did already have some experience doing like, front-end and machine learning stuff with Python, TensorFlow, all that tech stack and the, the web development stack like React, JavaScript, TypeScript, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, but, but blockchains at the time I joined did not seem like a place where you can build applications um, that are useful or, or even easy to, to, to build. Um, because, like, 2018, like, there was no DeFi, there was no nothing, it was just ERC-20 tokens left and right. Um, and eventually, like, 2019-2020, we saw, like, Maker and Aave, or at that time, Eatland, um and just DeFi Summer. Like, Uniswap, all the protocols coming to life, launching their tokens, and it was, like, DeFi Summer. Everybody was forming different food tokens and stuff. Um, so that that's like, around the time when I saw, okay, okay, you can actually do more than just, like, basic stuff. So that's that's when, sort of the first product market fit of programming on blockchains made sense to me just beyond like holding ETH or just like beyond the original crypto cypherpunk. Okay, let me decentralize money across a network of computers, right? So like the basics I understood, but beyond that, I did not see it as an application platform, right? So it took a while until I saw other things and financial applications were not that interesting to me at the beginning. Um, So it's mostly like interesting to learn about, but it was not something I wanted to build. So I also did not build during DeFi summer. I joined like, I started developing like early 2021 or yeah, mid 2021, I would say. Very cool.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say, and what were the first projects? So you're now at WorldCoin, but before that, um, Mm -hmm. what were the first things that you were playing around with? So
0: the first things, so I, I was I was uh, talking to a bunch of people on Twitter. One of which is Austin Griffith. Austin Griffith is like this wonderful educator um, in the in the Web Three Ethereum ecosystem, and he's made lots of courses, uh, teaching uh, like videos or or different like lectures, and he built this specific tool uh, called um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, but yeah, it's like this. It's like like this UI tool that allowed you to essentially drag and drop different crypto primitives and build things with it. And it's like pretty cool. Um, So I I, I went through a course that explained blockchains fundamentally, just like by assembling these different blocks. And eventually I came across Scaffold ETH and the Build Guild. So um, it's like a way where you have five or six different challenges, where you go from this template scaffold uh, that allows you to build reactive smart contracts. So essentially you write a smart contract solidity code, and with Scaffoldy, it auto-generates an interface for it, like a UI that you can play with. Um, so that was like my original, like, few challenges where I went, okay, build a token, uh, build a, a vendor, like a, like a vending machine, uh, build a, an AMM, like these sorts of things. So that was like, I guess my original, and of course, crypto zombies, But crypto zombies was a bit, like, more antiquated and it used older versions of Solidity. So I think I started more with Scaffoldy at the time. Uh,
1: very cool. Yeah, so as you've progressed through the space and built, uh, started to get your hands dirty. Uh, were there any projects that you built or just like design patterns that you got into uh, anything that, um, developers could learn from how you got into the space, Mm -hmm. like any, any, uh, anecdotes you want to
0: explore? So I guess the way that I actually started getting serious about development was when I got to my first conference, it was ETH Lisbon 2021 in October. And I met the Ave team in person. I hanged a lot around them. And I also met Miguel, Miguel Pedrafita, the Purple Heart developer. Um, So we we became really good friends, both Ave and me and Miguel. And so we started talking more and he was already, like Miguel was already building a couple apps. He built this um, um, like repo, building simple things with Solidity, like a simple version of ENS, a simple version of Uniswap, simple version of name your tool. And so that was like originally interesting to me. And I think I was exploring different places where I could go work to learn, right? Like entry-level junior blockchain engineer positions where I could learn more. And so I was exploring the space and there was like a lot of things, right? Like there's people doing MEV stuff, there's people doing DeFi stuff. There's people doing NFT stuff. There's like different primitives you can try and do and pursue even scalability. At that time, I already had written an article on rollups, uh, from the research point of view when I was still doing like the research job. So I was, I was getting into like, OK, I heard this thing like optimistic rollups and ZK rollups like late 2021 and then like cryptography started popping around more and more and more. And the next conference I went to, which was ETH Denver 2022 uh, last year in February, uh i met uh, a bunch of folks that i I was hanging around with on twitter and discord um from the alongside team and they're building like a crypto market index platform that allows you to aggregate um, like exposure to different tokens from different chains in one and so i i ended up joining them after east denver because we met in person we talked about all the different things they were doing and since they were a startup and there were like a few cool people that i I could learn from i decided to join part-time So I was doing like early exploration into like some cryptography stuff um, like secure multi-party computation, threshold signatures, essentially a way for a network of computers to hold a like a shard of a private key, like a small piece of a private key. And if you have lots of these shards, if you have enough of them, you're able to generate a valid signature for the entire like private key. This is like the basics of threshold, threshold signatures. And so I was just doing like research into cryptography and it like, got really interesting for me. So I was like, that's like my original, like, okay, cryptography is cool. I'm probably going to go more in this direction moving forward. And I was there for like five, six months, just, just doing some simple engineering and some research. Yeah. Very
1: cool. Yeah. It, DC, I think I, I really appreciate how, uh, you, the way that you got into the space, you sort of followed, uh, what you found interesting and intriguing. Um, and I think your approach to learning, uh, I think people can l- l- take a lot from it because I think a lot of times breaking into this, a space like this, people will immediately try to gravitate toward like, okay, I want to become uh, like a, a strong Solidity developer or XYZ mm-hmm. developer. Um, whereas I think in, in my understanding, you have more so gravitated toward like, hey, I'm going to tinker around with this thing um, and this thing is actually super interesting, which is going to lead me to this other thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that flow that you take?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I would definitely say I'm more curiosity driven, more than functionally driven or like end goal driven. Um, I was, I was, since at the beginning, you'd have very little context to how an industry works, how about a specific domain, like its intricacies, inner workings, mechanics, dynamics. It's a very complex space. And so it's really hard to navigate as someone that has literally zero context about what's going on. So I would say the best place to start is literally just go on Twitter and talk to people that are doing different things and have some sort of uh, ruler to measure what's legit, what's not legit. Um, generally, like in the beginning, it was really hard, like 2021, 2020, like 2018 until 2021, it was really hard to see like, okay, this is legit. This is not legit. Now, I guess it's a lot easier. Um, especially with like more adoption of tools and other things, but before it was like quite crazy, especially across ecosystems as well. Do I pick the theorem ecosystem? Do I go to EOS or Cardano? What, uh, 2018, 2019 times was well, very weird. Um, so nowadays, I think it's more straightforward. Uh, I would definitely suggest just talking to people uh, and sort of getting your own initial opinions of what things are. And once you have sort of your original like vibes, try doing simple things in different areas, like talk to those people. Hey, what's the like zero to one thing I can do here, like in cryptography, somebody might tell you, okay, um, like go through this like very simple cryptography course. And so we understand the basics, right, like read this basic book or implement this very simple thing or just use an API like do like import a library and do hash of the input and just do that and see what it does and compose it in different ways to do things. <clears throat> so I like do the zero to one in like different things that sound cool. And then you'll see sort of more, okay, is this something that if you extrapolate to what the state of the art is nowadays, if it's something that you're interested in um, based on the outcome of what the specific domain is trying to achieve, right? So if you're, if you're interested in financial primitives, then Okay, you're interested in like capital efficiency, new, new, new building blocks, uh, new applications that might impact the end user and end users will be able to do like have more financial freedom. So that's that's like if you care about those things do that or if you like doing those as well. It's, it's about finding I guess like a cross-section of things that are interesting to me that are um, cool, uh, that are impactful if, if that's something you care about if it's something like inherently good or if it's just a zero sum game where I'm a value extractor, think MEV for example. Um, yeah, like there, there's all of these different flags and values that you have to determine for yourself. And once you sort of determine those by poking around, you can set your objective fun- function better. And then once you have your objective, you just travel, like you just travel down the objective function, right? like you just try to it. It's like, okay, I'm going more towards my, my objective by doing things I think are going to take me further and talking to people and asking questions is usually the best way.
2: Yeah, I wanna I wanna get into your work at Worldcoin, but before we do that, I think something that, that also you uniquely do um, is you create content around what you are learning. Like, I'm thinking about the development guide that you built, or even that guide to L2s and talking about how, yes, you were doing that, um, you know, associated with a company, but, um, I would love to hear a little bit more on your your take on what it looks like to sort of create content and, and learn as you go mm-hmm. um, and, and where you think that comes from for you personally.
0: I think honestly that's like the best thing I ever did was share the things I was doing as I was doing them. Um, especially because lots of the opportunities I got later on were just from meeting people and those people knowing like beforehand that I had done something. Um, like, it's it's just so much better to talk to someone like, oh, you've built DevPill me and you've helped X amount of developers to learn blockchain engineering. Uh, for context, DevPill is the guide that Chase mentioned. Uh, it's just like an intro to blockchain engineering guide that goes through different things and you can go through different um, routes and learn different things. Um, so it's just, just by documenting the things I was building was like the zero to one moment for me because I was like, OK, I'm learning this for myself. It might be useful for other people that are in my shoes to learn from whatever I come up with in the end of it, by the end of it. And other people appreciate that, even the people that know a lot more than you do, Um, especially because sometimes they don't even have the time to to do those things. And especially if you talk to them, hey, can you help me by creating a guide for this specific thing? So, for example, I got Proto Lambda from the, at the time he was still at Geth um, as a core developer. Um, implementing different things. He eventually moved on to Optimism, but he essentially wrote the ETH Core development guide for DevBell. And like these these connections and friends, and eventually you just start hanging around them during conferences, they tell you what's legit, what's not legit, what's cool to work on, what's not cool to work on for them, right? And and eventually you sort of get a lot better just by having social capital um, and having some form of Way to determine what's what's worthwhile and what what the experts think uh, is worthwhile.
1: Very cool. Yeah, uh, I I want to jump into Worldcoin, um, mm-hmm. but before we go too deep, I think maybe it would help just to give the listeners sort of the high level overview of the project and uh, like exactly what problem Worldcoin is trying to solve. So if you wanted to start out there, that would be awesome. Sure.
0: Sure, um, so WorldCoin, I'll start sort of more with the history and how the different things that WorldCoin does now sort of came to be. So WorldCoin originally, um, like starting in 2019, mid 2019, uh, I was not part of the project back then, but just, just for, for, for context, um, it, was, it was sort of, um, if, if you extrapolate the assumption that AI uh, will generate most of the economic value of the world, right, so like now we have AI models that are that, that have some capacities, but they're not like too good. They're not like doing most, most tasks just yet. If you extrapolate to where they will go as they get better and better and better and more capable and they can do more actions, eventually you can, you can make the assumption or make the leap that they will generate most of the economic value in the world since there will be like logical actors that have some form of independence. And if they do some actions, they can accrue value by participating in the economy. Um, if those va- if those actors become like um, so good at extracting value or, or generating value in the economy that individuals do not have any uh, competitive uh, possibilities, then you need to sort of have a mechanism to distribute that value across um, humanity in a fair way. Um, and so the, the original premise was like, okay, um, this this is really important uh, for like longer periods of time. And the, the way to sort of make this fair uh, is to have some account of personhood or uniqueness in which in order for a person to sort of have a credibly neutral way of claiming that shared value of humanity would be to have a way to prove uniqueness and personhood to a protocol to claim that value. Um, and also as uh, LLMs started getting better, just the notion of proof of personhood in general is important because now you have like, a spam and bots across different protocols right just the proof of personhood part uh, is really important as well when you're doing civil resistant protocols like if you want to build a protocol when you assume that a person is unique and is not doing an action more than once uh, let's say voting right like if you want to do digital voting in a way that you don't kyc or you don't um, like um, have to resort to disclosing some information to some third party about yourself that verifies the uniqueness of, of your specific like, user. Um, then you sort of arise that proof, you arise to the conclusion that proof person is really important, primitive for the Internet at large. So that's sort of where WorldCoin came, came from. And so WorldCoin tried to, fr- from the beginning, the premise was, let, let me experiment with UBI, like non government funded UBI, and build the rails that will allow for humanity at large to have access to self sovereign finance and identity. But by self sovereign, I mean on like crypto rails that are like permissionless, decentralized, distributed. I have access to private keys that control a wallet, I own that wallet. And in the context of identity, well, something that does not reveal information about myself more than it needs to, uh, to prove personhood. And just just be self sovereign in the sense that I'm not, um, my identity is not custody by a third party. It's something that relies on ground truth, and I only selectively disclose things about myself using cryptography or like these these internet protocols that we are trying to build. So Worldcoin now, um, the the three main pillars or the three main products, I guess if you can name them that, or protocols um, that Worldcoin is building are the World ID protocol. So World ID. Um, um, is a proof of persona protocol that is privacy preserving. So essentially the way it works is that we have this hardware device called the orb um, that uh, is able to essentially represent the uniqueness encoded inside of a human iris or a pair of human irises. And it's able to sort of do an encoding of that information um, to a thing called an iris code. And what this IRIS code is, you can think of it as a vector in a multidimensional space. So if you have a vector, you have some notion of distance across these vectors. And if you check the distance uh, across some threshold, you can assume that the person is unique or not. So if if the, the difference between this vector and all the other vectors in the, in the database is more than some threshold, I can assume that this specific vector is unique, therefore the person is unique. And well, we can go to the technicals later, but that's sort of like the the original premise. Like you have some way to measure personhood or to prove personhood in a way that's privacy preserving. Because when you're proving person using World ID, you're not revealing which specific part of the user base you are, which specific user you are. You're just proving that you're unique and that you've not done an action before. So you can build civil resistant protocols where you can have like one person, one action type actions inside of an app, for example. The second part is the world app. So for every user that downloads the, the World app, it's a mobile wallet, mobile client, uh, I would say, mobile app, that uh, essentially exposes three things. Exposes the World app, which is the wallet. Um, um, so you, you essentially for every user, you have a smart contract wallet using Gnosis safes, or now they're just safes. So you have a smart contract wallet. Then you have um, a tab for World ID. So from the World app, you can do World ID proofs. And the zero-knowledge proofs get generated locally on device. And the third part, which is also the third part of the WorldCoin lineup, would be the WorldCoin token, which is the original experiment with UBI. So how how do we like give a token to everyone in a credibly neutral way? And every person can sort of claim this token progressively as time goes, just on the measure of them being unique people.
1: OK, super helpful. Let me just recap that. I'll play it mm-hmm. back and you can let me know this is a good yeah. summary. So um, another way to phrase the problem that WorldCoin is trying to solve uh, is a problem called the, the Sybil attack problem. Um, and the idea behind the Sybil attack problem is that um, with many websites, it doesn't really matter if people have multiple accounts on Twitter, you can sign up for as many accounts as you want. Yeah. And the, the like outcome or the downside from that is just that like, you know, people. End up with more in their feed that they need to sort through. Um, not a huge problem in a lot of Web two, but in Web three, as our as we kind of grow our aspirations and we think about kind of more future looking, um, we it would be really ideal if we had this system where we could prove with a certain amount of um, I guess certainty that. One person correlates to one account, which unlocks a lot of pretty interesting things like UBI is one example, Uh, one person, one vote, democracy. Um, I think it it brings us to a place that's that might look a little more interesting than um, a lot of the the criticism of like Web3, DeFi, uh, plutocracy, where, you know, the people with the most money have the most power. So it's attempting to solve this problem um that will ultimately allow for uh a single if you think of like your mailbox when you get mail everyone uh in your country has a single mailbox and you know that they you can send them mail same thing with this uh sort of like a mailbox for money uh if we need to get to a place where we want to distribute money evenly having an individual mailbox Per person is sort of like the first step. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- there are many different things we can go into. Good summary.
2: And then I guess the other side of that summary is that there are basically three parts of Worldcoin. The first is this like World ID system with the orb. The second one is this World app, mm-hmm. which has a smart contract wallet and also is the ability to generate zero knowledge proofs. And then the third one is this Worldcoin token, which is more around this UBI mm-hmm. experiment um yeah and all of that together makes up world coin world coin um yeah. i guess one quick just point of clarification so um i know like if you scan into the orb and you have a world coin ID or, or world id where does the world app fit into this like if i haven't had my eyes scanned i can still use the world app right how does that work
0: Yeah, so if you download the world app from the App Store, Google Play Store, um, you can use the smart contact wallet, but you won't have a world ID, right? Uh, So you cannot create these proofs of personhood and you cannot claim the token either. Um, So only if you go to an orb and you register at an orb, then you get a world ID, like a verified world ID. Um, when When you download the app, like from the get go, you see unverified world ID, right? It's just you generate a set of like a public private key pair um, that's just not inserted into the set of registered users.
1: So is it just a standard EVM wallet at that point?
0: Um, so there's pretty much, yeah, it's it's a safe multisig, right? It's a one out of one multisig where the private key and public key are stored on the phone. And there is another private public key pair, um, which are for this world ID protocol, which is essentially using semaphore under the hood. We can go into the technicals later but if you want.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think what makes a ton of sense um, to to go into is probably like, and I know you've probably gone through this a thousand times, but the flow mm-hmm. from orb scan to I've got world coin tokens, you know, in my wallet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. one thing that would be awesome to clarify here too is it seems like there's kind of like some... Um, confusion about what is stored and what is not stored in terms of iris data and all that kind of stuff partially because like mm-hmm. i think yep. the Worldcoin privacy statement has one thing and then the data consent form has another and i know that's something that <laughs> you've had to do a ton of conversations around so maybe if you can take us through that flow um and um also address mm-hmm. the sort of where is data stored or is data stored at all question would be good
0: yeah yeah yeah, all right, so um, if, if you, I, I'm gonna summarize like what is in the white paper, the full on like explanation with all the details is at whitepaper.worldcoin.org, but I'll sort of try to, to summarize what's in there. Um, so the orb, um, what it computes is this iris code at a signup. Like when you do a signup, what it computes is this iris code, this representation of the randomness. This in and of itself is not personally identifiable information. Is just a vector representation of the randomness, and this this is the only thing. It's it's not a cryptographic hash in the sense it does not underlie. There's some cryptographic properties. The reason for this is because you need to do the the vector check, like the vector distance check. If you do a pure hash, you lose the, the 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 vector information, right? Like you lose the distance property. You cannot do distance across hashes. Because they're random information, you lose that that property. And when you say vector um,
1: or like distance, you mean the difference between my iris and like any potential images of my iris.
0: Yes, the, 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 the difference between um, any given pair of irises and their representation uh, of the randomness. That's like every iris has some random information, which uh, is like created during birth, like during gestation. Um, so like that information gets encoded in your iris and every information for every single person is unique and even at billion people scales even at 10 billion people scales this information is random enough that you can tell them apart even like siblings or, or like twins or all of these like each of them have a unique biological pattern and so if you're able to create an algorithm that's able to sort of measure how unique that specific thing is um that's sort of like what you need to do checks across, okay, this person is unique, this is not unique. You're not identifying people as in like, you go to clear for example, which is this like airport um, um, type identification system where you take an image of your face and your RCs and it match them, matches them against a database of already people like faces and images of RCs and faces uh, and names and all of those things. So, so in, in those systems, you're, you're you know all the information about the customer, it's fully KYC pretty much and you're matching biometric information to biometric information, what ID does and what the orb does is it generates a representation of the randomness of the RS, and it checks this representation of the randomness against all the other representations of randomness. Mm-hmm. And these, these are the only things that leave the orb. Um, also, if you want to opt in for recovery, and if you want to opt in for um, like data collection, there is a toggle in the app where if you want to disclose your RS information to us, you can. Uh, but that's like separate from the, the 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 default flow. If if you want to register without disclosing any information about yourself, like no names, no nothing, you can you can fully do that without submitting any biometric information. Just this iris code is what leaves the orb.
2: So when you say um you can sort of default in or <clears throat> not default in opt into sharing more iris information, that's kind of the difference between like saying yeah. We scan your iris and we have no idea who you are. We just know how unique you are versus yeah. this alternative, which you could opt into, which sounds like it would be more like we scan your iris and we can actually figure out who you are more clear.
0: It's not figure out who you are. It's just we, we have biometric information. It's, it's not collecting names per se or anything. Right. It doesn't collect anything but the scan itself.
2: But it yeah. can be traced back to some unique individual Can it be traced back to a world ID? Is that the...
0: Uh, I would would have to read the white paper for that. That's like some technical implementation things. I'm not sure about that from my head.
2: That makes sense. We're 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 getting into detailed stuff, Um, but that makes a lot of sense. So the IRIS code itself um, is not actually an identifier. It's simply a, a way of representing how unique an individual's IRIS is.
0: It's literally an authenticated public key. So once you generate this RS code and this RS code gets checked for uniqueness, um, the public key that the user generates is exposed to the Orb via a QR code, right? So when I'm when I'm getting signed up, I download the app, blah blah blah, I go through the verify with an Orb steps, and by the end of it, what I get is a QR code which has my public key essentially, um, my Semaphore or World ID public key. I show it to the Orb, then I do the sign up. The org will verify that my iris code is unique and then it will if, if it verifies that is unique it will insert that uh, world id public key to the set of registered world id users on the smart contracts on a third
1: got it so yeah one of the things i wanted to dig into a little bit more is around like that iris data mm-hmm. and, and the opt-in thing um i think part of some of the confusion that i've seen on twitter um there was this tweet from at holistic guy that showed like a recording of the flow where uh you had to like accept the terms and conditions where uh world would have the ability to send those images and biometric data outside of the country where they're located and that was like a required checkbox in order to continue through the flow so i think um there was like some confusion around does that mean that like you, you have to sort of opt in and it's not really a choice or is it like, is it a wording issue or.
0: I, I, I think, I think that might have been a screenshot from like alpha early beta times, like three, three, two, three year old. like originally. And that that was purely disclosed. Yeah. It's, it's just an old screenshot. I think like those that I've seen, I've
1: got it. Okay. That's, that's helpful. So then I guess the the reason why that image might even be helpful to worldcoin uh to begin with maybe we can dig into
0: it's training training models right like training training the iris code generation model like in order to create an algorithm that's able to sort of represent this uniqueness and do this uniqueness check across billions of people in a way that has a statistically really low probability of um either having a false positive or a false negative is why you'd want to collect information in the first place I, I can go just a little bit more into detail right so like the false positive in this case would be okay i go to an orb and i am able to create more than world, one world id right so if I if am a unique person, but I've already registered with world ID, I have a unique world ID, I go to an orb again and I create another world ID and I have two world IDs, like this is a false positive, right? Like the, the, the check fails because it's not able to determine distance properly. It's overly optimistic, right? So, so that's bad. Um, the the, the counter example, which is also bad, is a false negative, meaning that I am a unique person, I go to an orb, I've never signed up before, and the orb tells me, hey, you've already have a matching IRIS code which means that you've coll- collided with one one other RS code um that's already registered and this is also bad because you're not including the user which should be included because they are a unique person that've never signed up before so in order to minimize both these um formally known as false matching rates and false non matching rates uh you'd have to have a well trained model yes
1: that makes sense it's, and i imagine like the, over time the algorithm will probably improve right and so Um, Mm -hmm. there are sort of uh, two different approaches when there's an improvement in the algorithm Um, on one hand you could have everyone come back to the orb and rescan their eye and resubmit it through that new algorithm or you could take either an existing image or maybe a, a like a an encrypted version of the existing image and then just funnel that through to the new algorithm can you talk a little bit about that yeah
0: yeah, sure. So that's also another of the reasons for why you might want to back up your, your biometric data. Um, if you back it up, you're, we're able to regenerate the RS code for you and reinsert it to the set of verified users if we ever update the RS code generation model. right? So if you update the model to something that's far more performant at a more people scale, less likely to, to have false matching and false non-matching rates then the output space of, the, of this algorithm would, would be completely different. Meaning that for the same user you had before, you'd create a wildly different output. Therefore, they would be able to create at least one other new world ID. Um, so you don't want that. So what you do is you would create a separate um, world ID set of verified users, like a different Merkle tree, and you start inserting the new one you would first migrate all of the users that have the backup. And then for the, all the other users, they would be required to go to an orb again and recompute this this um, like Iris code, again, using the new model. Or there's a third option, which is more like a research question, is you would allow users to self-host their encrypted like, image from the orb. So the orb itself has a secure element um, and a secure element essentially hosts private keys, cryptographic keys. And what, what this secure element is able to do is it's able to sign the image um, of the orb. Um, so the orb, like the, it takes the original image from which you generate the iris code. So this image, it signs it and then you could encrypt it with a signature on top of it, store it, self hosted on the user's client, user's phone or whatever other client they implement for WorldID in the future. So you'd be able to store them there and whenever you create a new model that creates iris codes more efficiently. Um, You would essentially go into this ZKML domain where you would download a ZK prover for generating this iris code. So you'd have to create a prover for the iris code model, like a ZK circuit and and a ZK prover for for this iris code model. You'd create a proof of the creation of this iris code locally um, on using the image that has the signature from the orb, right? So like the trust assumptions are not broken and you create this new iris code and you would submit this new iris code to a backend that would essentially verify the proof uh, and th- uh, once it verifies the proof it would insert the iris code uh, into the set of um, valid iris codes and it would reinsert your public key um, to the new new tree of registered users that use this uses the new model for for verifying uniqueness okay
1: so to recap there are currently two and maybe potentially three. Yeah, so ways for a user to take their iris data and have it uh, continue to work through any sort of upgrade to the model. Uh, The first way is you opt in to have your data stored by WorldCoin and then they uh, will basically loop through all of that data, funnel all that Mm -hmm. into the new model. Option two is you have to go rescan Uh, And then option three, which sounds like, is this something that you're working on?
0: Uh, Well, I've done some research into ZKML, but uh, I'm not uh, an expert in either ZK or ML. Um, There's a bunch of startups that are doing ZKML stuff. I originally created the ZKML community which is just the telegram group uh, of people that are working in the ZKML space. I created that like last year. And I've been like the top funnel evangelizer for, for the space. Like I've been creating some aggregational resources for materials in the space. I've given like 10 talks at different events, latest one being ECC, um, just like explaining evangelizing ZKML. And we are partnering with, with Modulus Labs for creating a prover to, for the Iris code generation model.
1: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So, then, yeah, finishing the recap, the third option uh, that is in the works is this one where the Iris data is self hosted and encrypted on the secure enclave of a device, and then it, it can then be resent back f- to update through the new model. So, uh, in the meantime, it sounds like there might be some sort of a trade off between user experience and privacy uh, yeah. for like people that either choose to go back to an orb or Mm -hmm. have their data trusted can you talk a little bit about that uh that trade-off that exists now
0: i I think that's like a general trade-off across the internet right um yeah it's if you want to do something and the implementation requires some original inputs uh, you need somehow to get those inputs to do whatever you need to do Right. If, if you want to log into a website, well, you need to at least have a Google account to sign in with Google and Google needs to custody your credentials in some database and have all these like connecting blocks to do this. If, if you want to measure uniqueness and have some hard guarantee, well, you need to, at the end of it, like get either scanned in person uh, or, or custody like the data somewhere. Um, to to sort of re- recreate the iris code from some existing data that that's been verified to be unique already, um, right? So it's 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 always like a choice done by the user in this sense. If you're a privacy advocate, then you do not um, custody any of your data more than you want anywhere. Um, you can fully you can be fully self custodial in the sense that the only thing that leaves is the iris code, and everything else is. On your, on your own, like custody by yourself. Even in the ZKML scenario, it would be self-custodied. Um, but that, that would be like an improvement in user experience where you can have self-custody and also have this regeneration process without having to go in person again. Um, so there's like different routes you can take. It's yeah. like a decision tree. Do I do I keep it on, like back it up? Do I just go to an orb again, or do I wait until zkml is a thing and then register for the first time?
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. I mean, to your point, this is a um, a pattern that we see across Web two and in even Web three. I think um, I, I really empathize with you uh, in the way that on Twitter, uh, you will be kind of pulled into a lot of uh, a lot of like concern and confusion um and so i'm glad we're having this opportunity to talk through this stuff because um Mm -hmm. i think the the feeling underneath that a lot of people probably have is like this experience of web 2 where their data is the commodity like their data is the way that that the system sort of monetizes itself Um, and so they worry about this idea of like okay now i'm sending Uh, my iris data to some company and like they're used to this experience of any data that they put out to some centralized corporation is likely to be like resold. Um, It sounds like in the case of WorldCoin, um, WorldCoin is in this position of taking iris data and sort of converting that into this platform for trust. So I think like reselling Iris data would probably we're, we're break... not reselling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I think it would. It, it, it's important. Uh, I think in this conversation, to um, to think about sort of like the the importance of trust within what Worldcoin is doing. So can you talk a little bit about um, like that conversion from iris data into trust, and maybe sort of like put uh, put this in the context of like mm-hmm. why yeah. it is that. WorldCoin shouldn't want to sell people's data.
0: The, the, the source of trust here is not even the, the IRS data itself, like the actual file, the source of data is that someone in real life had a matching information on themselves, like as real human beings. So the source of trust is not the image itself or any representation or RS code itself. The source of trust is the orb. Essentially the orb is a hardware device that does two things. One is to determine that a person is real, right? It checks that you're not wearing contact lenses, not wearing glasses, um, that you're uh, essentially like have a continuous heat map. There's a bunch of different sensors, multispectral. So it checks not only RGB, but it checks infrared, field of depth, a bunch of other stuff. You can read more on the white paper again, right? So it's it's this sort of device that does these two things. Once it verifies that the person is real, it sort of takes a an image and it's able to uh, compute this sort of Uh, iris code representation of uniqueness for that specific biometric. And again, like the way that you know that this iris code was generated from an image that was on a real person is because the orb signs the image that it takes once it verifies that it's real. And uh, all the computations happen locally on the, the orb inside of a trusted execution environment. And there is a lot of tamper prevention mechanisms built into the orb that prevent it from people essentially breaking into it and trying to to um, sort of tamper with the computations. Um, if, if you open the orb, uh, you will essentially brick it. Uh, if you try to tamper with other things, it will, it will uh, become like a brick, like useless once once you tamper with, with different things. Um, and th- that's sort of like the source of trust. If you're able to break the source of trust, meaning that you're able to compromise the orb in some way through some like different types of attacks. Like there's different types of attacks on the hardware you can do, there's attacks you can do on the imaging, like the machine learning part of things. There's attacks you can even do on like later stages of the stack, like let's say the cryptography stack uh, or like the protocol stack. Like if this contract, the Solidity contract is implemented incorrectly and somebody is able to insert arbitrary identities, then you can break it like that, right? So like the source of trust is the ORB and the security guarantees of the ORB for which we like have state-of-the-art methods put in place and always improving, having audits, checking things. Uh, we recently also published uh, two audits, one for the smart contracts, one for the ORB backend and several other services. One was done by least an authority. Another one was done by Nethermind. Um, more on that either on our blog or the white paper. Um, and yeah, it's just like, that's the source of trust. The orb yeah. is what determines that a person is real and unique.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So then, um, it sounds like the majority of the hardware specs are open sourced, except for the tamper mechanism. Is that right? I guess yeah. for the, for the reasons of if you open source yeah. the tamper mechanism, that makes it very easy Yeah, like easy provision, to crack. provisioning
0: mechanisms, things like that. Uh, but but the hardware specs uh, itself are open source. If you go to github.com slash worldcoin slash orb dash hardware, or you go to worldcoin.org slash blog and you search for opening the orb. It's like a blog post that goes into it. Or you can also go from the white paper. Like it's it's like they're just mutually linked. Right. So you you can yep. traverse any 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 subset of, of that.
1: Got it. Yeah, I, I mean speaking of uh empathizing with you. I saw on Twitter, I think it was like on Friday, there was a group of people that sort of wanted to uh impose an impromptu audit uh and they were told to schedule one. And I I see this trade-off between uh on the one hand I like this idea of impromptu like decentralized audits. On the other Mm -hmm. hand I recognize that as you said, that bricks the orb. So it's essentially like walking into uh like a tv store and say like i would like to throw your tv in the trash um so can you talk a little bit about maybe that situation um and like maybe what an ideal uh like system that could exist in the future to allow for more sort of like organic auditing might look like
0: yeah, we, we, we have like a full on like decentralization and open sourcing roadmap, where we, we, we want literally everyone to be able to build their own orbs uh, if they have the resources necessary for it. Uh, so we're we're progressively open sourcing everything. If you go to worldcoin.org slash open source, you can see what's open source currently out of the entire stack, what's not, and links for, for those um it'll be like a long step because you're you're not necessarily decentralizing the 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 hardware step you're just decentralizing the resources to make one and then different entities will be able to build several and if they if if they build something according to the specification then they would be able to essentially leverage world id or be parts of world id right like add their separate world id tree and insert into that world id tree and be part of the World Lady protocol at large. So that's like one part of the decentralization open source thing where like there's no trust in Tools for Humanity. The Tools for Humanity is for, for reference, the, the company developing um, most of the things for WorldCoin like uh, the Orb, uh, like the app and other things. And then there's the WorldCoin Foundation which has the IP of the protocol and all these other things. So all the open source like protocol, blockchain related things are under um, the WorldCoin Foundation and the Tools for Humanity company is sort of building infrastructure for WorldCoin and yeah so like ideally you would have lots of entities like Tools for Humanity that build different mobile clients for World ID that interoperate with it, that build orbs, that build um, like that do their own audits, uh, that have different trust assumptions maybe if they want to have different types of devices, different things, different firmware um, and then for the auditing part that you mentioned uh, well there's, there's in traditional hardware spaces you have this sort of acceptance sampling method where um, the way that you test something um, where you have destructive effects is that you have a batch that proceeds the same exact build process, like literally the same, they're identical, identical in theory, right? Like In theory, you use the same method to build a specific thing. Let's say you have a chip factory, right? And you, you build a thousand chips in a batch and they're used for with the same machines in a row, uh, with the same like materials, the same composites, the same components, down to the specification, like down to the last thing. What you do to test those devices or that batch is you can break like ten out of a thousand and check those ten that they're actually like doing the, the right thing, and then you can assume that the rest is correct. That that, that sort of testing um, method is called acceptance sampling, where you sample a part of the whole, and you can assume that the whole is correct if. The, the part was uh, conforming to what you're trying to find. In the case of ORBs, you would have a similar scenario, right? Like, so if you break 10 ORBs out of a batch of a thousand and you check that, okay, it's running the correct firmware, it's running this, it's, it has this, it has this, it has this, there's no hidden information, there's no lies, everything's according to the public open source spec, then you can consider that a good audit of sorts, um, right? Then there's the decentralized audit, like impromptu, like, can I verify if an ORB Uh, is like correct or not. Well, there's, uh, it's not something that people have really thought about like how to decentralize these things and in the traditional world, audits are not really done like this. They're usually done in the manufacturing uh, step. If you want to do this like this, maybe there there could be a DAO that just votes on different auditors that have the right to show up somewhere and just uh, schedule an audit like impromptu or not even schedule, like impromptu just show up and hey, I have this right. And here you have a replacement orb or whatever right like you just break it analyze it like you could probably do it something like that but it's it's still like up in the air of how those things could be implemented in real life
2: yeah this feels like more broadly like an interesting question that we're probably going to need to face as we move closer to the hardware in crypto which is basically just like you know to your point in the traditional world um governments require certain audits and tests on vehicles to make sure that people don't get Mm -hmm. hurt. Um, and these like centralized points of authority are really great in the context of keeping people safe. Um, and it feels like in the context of something that's much more distributed, decentralized, um, not associated with a given nation or state. Um, there's definitely this open question around like who holds the responsibility for conducting these and, and who should be, um, who should be assessing how safe these things are? Um, the idea of a DAO is interesting, but it definitely feels like an open and unsolved question mark.
0: It, it, it's generally like with hardware, a lot of the assumptions you have with software do not do not port over, right? Like it's not easy to audit hardware the same way that it's a lot easier to audit software. You can verify, okay, this is the software that's running. This is what's running in production. You can match the bytecode and the hashes of the bytecode. Okay, this is the same. Like that's how EtherScan does verification of smart contracts. I know that at this smart contract address, you have some bytecode that's deployed there. It matches the build from this code base using this compiler version, using these compiler flags. It matches one-to-one, easy. Like you know that this is what's there. You can verify, you can display, okay, this is the code that's running here. For hardware, it's, there's a lot more levels of complexity, especially if you go, as you go to physical reality, where you have chips and, uh, like gates and different components, you'd have to break individual parts and you you'd essentially break the entire thing. You don't have these nice layers of abstraction that software operates on top of.
1: Very cool. So I, I want to fast forward. I've scanned my iris. I have downloaded the mobile app. I've uh, Mm -hmm. set up a wallet. I can now generate ZK proofs. So any application that wants to, um, identify unique humans, I can now prove that I am a unique human, uh, and I'm receiving world token. Um, I want to dig into the token a little bit more. Would you say that UBI is the primary goal of either, uh, like the world coin system as a whole, or, Mm -hmm. or just like the world token? Um, yes. Or is it more of a side effect?
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I think I think it was the original one of the original premises is like, how do you experiment with this? Uh, because currently there is no there 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 are no rails to do this, right? Like, if you want to do it like the the existing experiment route where you have some government funded UBI, well, the the banking rails would be like bank accounts, uh, like traditional banks, and the the identification rails would be government KYC, right? So y- you you limit yourself both in privacy and in in distribution size. Um, so WorldCoin would be like how do you build the rails for this to even be possible? And the WorldCoin token would be like the first instantiation of an experiment that builds on these new rails, like proof personhood via the orb and privacy preserving proof personhood. Um, and the rails being uh, crypto, right? Like blockchains, distributed systems that have some, like, credibly neutral ways of achieving consensus via consensus protocols that have some crypto economic security guarantees. Um, so that's that's sort of like the worldcoin is like the first instantiation that can be evolving over time. I don't. I wouldn't call it UBI in the sense that it's basic income that covers like your your day to day, right? Like that's sort of like the premise of UBI, right? Like. It covers your basic monthly necessities. It definitely does not for pretty much the entire world. Like if you receive one world coin per week, uh, it's not not UBI. I would say, but it's it's something that first explores the sort of dynamics of how a system like this would work. Right, like once you give a unique token to I don't know how many people have already claimed their world their world coin tokens, but like if you expand this network, like what interesting emerging phenomena you have. Do people like use it to send stuff back and forth? I think nowadays people still care mostly about usd denominated stable coins and that in and of itself so like the world app also gives you access to to usdc right so you can just send usdc across across your any world app uh, or any like ethereum um, or, sorry optimism since the wallets are deployed on optimism any optimism address
1: you've done a really great job of addressing a lot of the concerns in the space. And I'm sure that like, these are the questions that you hear constantly. And it's, I, I empathize because I see a lot of correlation between the way that you, um, you're very passionate about Worldcoin, and you, or even just like passionate about what you do. Um, and you sort of like see this vision. Uh, whereas a lot of outsiders, they don't like, I, I have experienced that myself in crypto, and I'm sure you have as well, where people mm-hmm. that don't know as much about it are like, okay, this is bad. Like, this is just going to destroy humanity. And, um, whereas yeah. like you have this, this vision that you don't necessarily see it going that way. I,
0: I, I mean, personally, I, I think I'm in that position mostly because I'm one of the more like crypto native of uh, facing people. Um, and like one that has a following even, right? Yeah. Like I've, I've been in this space and I've talked, I've, I've been very social in this space. So I am usually the one answering these questions for the crypto native folks. There's of course the general addressing things like podcasts with bankless or, or other, other appearances and media and whatnot. Yeah. Um, for me personally is uh, how do I explain the technology in a way that's just neutral, right? Like, okay, this is what it is. Uh, it's hard to convince that this is what it is because of the nature of hardware, because of the nature of the protocol itself. Um, but the software things, the software aspect of things is sort of like the easiest one to demonstrate, right? Like, yeah. I am I can easily go over the code base right now and explain literally every smart contract what it does, and you can verify that it does what it does um, very so, easily. The hardware and operations side of things is sort of something I cannot really speak to, um, but I'm trying to at least explain what we have in the white paper and how things are done generally.
1: Yeah, and so I think that that leads to my final question. Like for those that still see Worldcoin as concerning uh or they imagine that there's sort of a misalignment between the goals of the project and the incentives built into it. Uh what what can you say to those people um and is there any way that you see that Worldcoin can improve their public perception? uh with those people
0: well if you're skeptical like that's a really good thing to be right like you should be skeptical right like these are not things that are easy to wrap your head around if you want to understand them in depth so i'd suggest first like l- learn as much as you can about the systems from either the white paper and all the other resources that we have out there then it's it's mostly about how do you build public trust uh, in something you're building Um, so I would guess like judge people by their actions over long periods of time. And once you're convinced, then be convinced, or you don't have to be convinced at all. Like the whole point is people have the right to make up their own minds. If they don't like world ID, then don't get signed up as easy as that. If you don't want other people to get signed up, well, you can explain to them why you have that thought. And that's it, right? Like, um you have your own sovereign freedom to, to do your own choices. Um, so I, I guess like that's the best thing I can say, like read more and then judge people by their actions over a long period of time. And things that Worldcoin can do, well, I guess that's mostly why the decentralization and open sourcing roadmap is out there for, right? Like if we have a set of goals for ourselves to how do we actually make world ID credibly neutral? Because in the end of the day, right? Like if we're trying to build world ID, something that scales to the world, it needs to become as as neutral and credibly as HTTP, as FTP, as like any internet protocol, like TCP, IP. Nobody thinks of some regulator or governing body or, or company when you think about Linux. Well, you can think about like Linux Torvalds or whatever, like the creators and some developers, but you don't think of it as, okay, there's some entity that governs this um, or that like owns this, right? Like it's, it's open source software. Um, and it's it's you can verify the code for yourself. You can modify it however you want, right? So the the point is, we should build a protocol that anybody can participate in at any level of the stack, from the um, manufacturing of orbs to operating on top of World ID, to creating clients, to creating apps, to creating integrations, to creating bridging mechanisms for World ID across different networks and protocols and apps and creating APIs for World ID, like data, like all these sorts of things, should be accessible to anyone at any level of the stack, if they have the resources and they implement the specifications correctly. Like th- that's what it means to build an open source protocol. Right, so that, I guess at that point, once you have that, it's a lot easier to take it for what it is, instead of having this negative connotation, oh, it's, it's Tools for Humanity building Worldcoin. It's, it's a global protocol that's used by X amount of people and anyone can participate in it. At that point, it's credibly neutral, so you don't have the negative stigma. But it's, it's definitely really hard to get there because of the hardware part of things.
2: Totally. Um, well, this was such an incredible conversation. Really appreciate you um, taking the time to articulate all of this stuff, which I know you've been doing over the last few weeks. Um, before we wrap up, where can people learn more about the work that you're doing at WorldCoin and in the space more broadly? Mm,
0: I would say my Twitter is generally the best place, or just my GitHub? If you want to see my commits, uh, but, but yeah, um, like, just mostly my Twitter, like DC Three R at on Twitter. Yeah.
2: Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was wonderful.
1: Appreciate you, DC. Thank her. you.